learning another language is a really good experience. You never really know your language until you learn another one. Another thing you learn when you learn, for example, German, is that English is a very hard language to learn. Do you all know that? And part of what makes English such a difficult language to learn is that we have borrowed from other languages quite liberally. And so, for example, there are many words that have a bunch of meanings. Charge, for example, occurs in the dictionary 17 times as a noun and 12 times as a verb. The word charge has 29 meanings. For example, charge means the scope of somebody's responsibility. Charge means someone or something entrusted to one's care. Charge is a load or a burden. A charge is the amount of money levied for a service. A charge is instruction. In the military, a charge is a ground attack against a prepared enemy. In a court case, a charge is an accusation. It could be an electrical charge. In basketball, a charge is an offensive foul in which a player with the ball moves into a stationary defender. And I could go on, but I'm not. Now, fortunately, the word charge usually does not confuse us because there is context. The, the conversation or what we're reading provides us with the meaning as the author intends it. But there are times when a word, sometimes even an important word, is less than clear because either the context in which we're coming up with this word is unclear or because we, the reader, import our own context into whatever it is that we're reading. Tonight, we come to one such word. In Philippians 1.27, we read, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, unfortunately, many within the church have translated the word worthy. They have imported their own context into what Paul was saying. They have mistranslated the word worthy into what John Piper calls the debtor's ethic. This is the idea expressed something along the lines of, God has done so much for you, don't you think you owe it to him to live better? John Piper calls that the debtor's ethic because what it miscommunicates is that somehow we need to or God demands that we pay Him back. And my friends, we cannot pay Him back. In fact, though it isn't necessarily quite the legalism that we normally know it, it is a species of legalism. And if you remember several years ago and a couple of times since then, I've taught that legalism is kind of complicated. There is, first of all, salvation legalism. You must do this to be saved. Now, unless the this is repent and believe which is exactly what the Bible teaches us we must do to be saved, if it is anything else other than what is given by the Bible, insisting on baptism or church attendance or giving your money, if, if we put anything else 
in place of or in addition to the gospel, we are going against Christianity. Now, let's be honest here. For the most part, evangelicals do not struggle with this. This isn't something that we struggle with. But, many of us do struggle with one of the next two kinds of legalism. What I call sanctification, yes, legalism. You must do this in order to be a good Christian. Now, this is a tricky one. You have all heard me say on more than one occasion, memorizing Scripture is the most important discipline you can engage in in your process of becoming more like Jesus. I stand by that. Memorizing Scripture is the most important discipline you can engage in if you want to become more like Jesus. But there is a difference between saying that and saying you can't be a good Christian if you don't memorize Scripture. Or, well, so-and-so memorizes more Scripture than so-and-so, therefore he or she is a better Christian. That is getting into this sanctification, yes, legalism, and is very close to what John Piper is calling the debtor's ethic. Can you see someone saying you must live worthy of all that God has done for you, therefore memorize Scripture? Now, you should memorize Scripture because it is the most important discipline in our growing to be like Christ. But you have to be careful how you communicate it both to your heart and to the disciples that you make. Now, of course, this is just the flip side of the third form of legalism, the sanctification, no legalism. And that says you must not do this or you can't be a good Christian. You're all familiar. Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Now again, there's a lot of wisdom behind this sanctification, no legalism. However, if what you're doing is setting yourself up above somebody else, or you're putting them down because they struggle with a specific sin or Maybe it's not even a sin. You're just classifying it as one. Then what you have is once again a debtor's ethic. Well, you know, God has done so much for you. Therefore, you can't do this. Boy, we struggle with that, don't we? And we have to see, we have to understand this kind of debtor's ethic, according to Piper, or what I'm calling sanctification legalism, in order to come to a right understanding of this word worthy, as Paul uses it in Philippians 1.27. What worthy does not mean is that sanctification kind of legalism or this debtor's ethic. So, if that's true, what do we need to see? Well, in order to determine the meaning, we, also, we have to go back to the rule that we've said many times. It's the same one as determining the value of real estate. And we have to find out the location, location, location. Right, Sandy? 
But in word, in talking about words, instead of location, we say context, context, context. Where is it that this word occurs so that we can understand how it applies to our lives? And you always start right at ground zero, right where that word occurs. So let's do that in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. We're going to land on that phrase next week. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now we find, based upon this paragraph, this local context, that we are to live as heavenly citizens. I'll explain that in a moment. We are to live as heavenly citizens, and this citizen living is done when we are standing firm in one spirit. We are with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the good news, and we are not frightened in anything by our opponents. We further see that these three heavenly citizen traits are a fairly close description of the verses that we just finished looking at, verses 12 to 26, and are actually not a bad summary of the book of Philippians as a whole. And we will spend time next week more closely considering these, these characteristics as we look at the paragraph as a whole. But I want to start by saying, why do I say that the primary issue of living worthy is living as a heavenly citizen? Now, in this case, it's important to have some facility with Greek. I'm not suggesting that you have to understand Greek in order to understand your Bible. But if you don't, and none of us here read it, a good thing to do is to get a commentary or two. Now, these are the two commentaries I use. Uh, Moises Silva is uh, the commentary that I go to for Philippians when I'm wanting to get the technical parts of what's going on. What, what is Philippians saying and getting the context? Uh, J.A. Motier is actually the one I quote more often. He is a little more quotable than uh, Silva, but I use them equally. And they will point out things like the word that I'm about to say, which in Greek would just go over our heads. If you're interested, I won't loan these to you because I'm still using them, but I'll show them more closely to you. But the word in question is politeuth esthe. Okay, I want you all to say that. Never mind. And it means to live as a citizen or to conduct oneself as a citizen. Now, I take the heavenly citizen part of this from one of the most important verses in the book of Philippians. And it's the other time that Paul uses this citizen concept. And that's found in Philippians 3.20-21. 20 
where Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So, Paul is concerned in the book of Philippians, at least twice he gave us this idea, that we live as citizens of heaven while we remain on earth. By the way, that also implies it doesn't matter where you are a citizen from. It doesn't even matter what country you come from. What matters is that you are a citizen of heaven. Because Christians do not belong to the world anymore. We are different. We belong to a different master. And it makes sense for us to live in a way that reflects our new affinities that we have as citizens of heaven. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what country you're from or what country your grandparents are from. It, none of these things matter. What matters is that we are citizens of heaven first. It makes sense, in other words, for us to live in obedience to our new master. That's not any president. That's not certainly self. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to hear an amen right now. But there is a larger context. So we start in looking at context. What does worthy mean? By looking at the paragraph. And we're going to spend more time in that next week. Then we expand the, the context a little bit more. And we go to the book itself. Where we find out what is going on in the letter to the Philippians. But now we're going to expand it just one step more. And we're going to look at the rest of what Paul says in some other books. So that we can see what Paul means. And at this point, I look at 2 Thessalonians 1.11. To this end, Paul says, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. Now we need to note two things about worthy in this verse. Number one, it is God who makes us worthy. Number one, the first thing to notice about living worthy is that it is God who makes us worthy. And I take it that this worthy of His calling that He uses here in 2 Thessalonians is not substantially different than living worthy of the good news of Christ that Paul says in Philippians. I don't think there's any significant difference between the two. But the second thing we notice about living worthy right here in 2 Thessalonians 1 is our living worthy of His calling is done by fulfilling every resolve for good and every work of faith. It is not enough to say that God is not mad at you for missing your quiet time today. Now that's true enough. But the whole truth includes the idea that if you are one who belongs to Jesus, if you are one who has surrendered to Him, if you are one who calls yourself by the name of Christ then what are you doing if you're not resolving and carrying out your resolutions to read Scripture every day? 
if you praise Jesus for the grace that He will not condemn you for missing a day in His Word, you are on safe ground. If you presume upon His grace to ignore His Word and don't resolve to strive to know Him better so that you will love Him more and trust Him more, then you may not be a Christian. John Piper says this, 2 Thessalonians 1.11 says that it is by the power of God that we fulfill our good resolves like reading Scripture every day and our works of faith, which Jesus says giving alms to the poor, fasting, and prayer. But this does not nullify the meaning of the word resolve and the word work. Part of the whole process of walking worthy of God's call is the active engagement of our will in resolving to do righteousness. If you have a lingering sin in your life or if you keep neglecting some good deed just because you have been waiting around to be saved without a fight, you are compounding your disobedience. God will never appear with power in your will in any other way than through your exercise of that will. That is, through your good resolves, your good intentions and plans and purposes. It is not enough to simply say, oh God, do a great work in me. Sure, He will do a good work in you. But you have to resolve to do it. Living worthy is this balance of trusting God's promises to come through for you when you step out in faith. Trusting God's promises means I am trusting Him for the power of mind to do it. I am trusting God's promises that He will work in me and through me and for me to change my loves and my hates so that I will happily go to Him in His Word. There's another level of context, and obviously I'm skipping a lot because I only have 30 minutes or so. But we looked at the immediate paragraph, what does worthy mean? And we looked at the book of Philippians, and we looked at the rest of what Paul says. And now I want to look at the Bible as a whole. What does the Bible say about living worthily? In the interest of brevity, I want to look at one particular passage. And this one is the introduction to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses writes, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make yourself, not make yourself a carved image. Boy, that would have been a bad mistake. And he continues, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, lie, or covet. The point is, that he gives us these ten laws. Now, I don't think I need to tell anybody here that this is a seminal passage for all of Scripture. In order to understand all of Scripture, we need to understand this passage. There are few passages in the Bible that are more foundational than the giving of the ten basic laws upon which at least all of the Old Testament is based. And from one perspective, this is exactly what we should expect. 
God is in the business of giving laws. He wants to make sure we are aware of how we are to go about relating to him. He wants to tell us how life in his world works best. He wants to make sure that we get things right. But, of course, this is only half of the truth. And a half-truth told as a whole truth is a lie. So, what is missing from this understanding that God is this lawgiver only? Well, we find the answer in verse 2. Moses writes, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before the personal creator king of the universe gives us one law in the Ten Commandments, before he tells us you shall have no other gods and you shall not worship idols, the personal creator king of the universe reminds us that the laws he gives us are rooted first and foremost in the redemptive act he has already performed. God does not say, okay, I want you all to march back to Egypt and then I want you to save yourselves. He doesn't say that. He reminds them, before he gives them the law, he reminds them, this is what I've already done. I have redeemed you. Before we read you must, we see in unmistakable words, you are safe. You are loved. If we are to understand what it means to live worthy, we need to understand the Ten Commandments. If we are to understand what it means to live worthy, we need to understand that before the Ten Commandments are given, you are rescued. You are rescued from yourself. You are rescued from the need to impress God. Man alive, you thought this was going to be an easy sermon, didn't you? Trust first of all in the finished act of God who completed your redemption so that you can now trust and hope and love and move forward in living a life worthy of the good news that you have been called to. Trust the fact that you are saved so that now you can live as one who is saved. Here is another way to think about what it means to live worthy. To live worthy of the good news of Jesus is not to earn merit. To live worthy of the good news of Jesus is to live bearing fruit that comes as a result of this good news. You are safe. You are loved. To live worthy of the good news of Jesus is to be the good news. To live worthy of the good news of Christ is to live as citizens of heaven by the power of God at work in us and through us and for us. We looked at worthy as a possible definition of saying, it's something you have to pay back to God. 
this debtor's ethic, this sanctification legalism. And we rightly rejected that from being a part of it. And then we looked at the context in various contexts, and what we saw over and over again is that being worthy is being one who is living out what God has put in. And if we repent of the idea of earning merit in God's sight through anything you do or don't do, then you will rejoice that you bear fruit that is appropriate to your relationship with Him. And this fruit will be that you live so that others see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. If that isn't true, you have to ask yourself, what are you doing? To whom do you belong? Salvation is by grace through faith. And so is living out this salvation as the citizens of heaven by grace through faith. We saw this in Exodus chapter 20 and we see it also in Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For because we are God's workmanship who are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Evidently, God takes it seriously that He does the work of saving us and then He does the work of working in us and through us and for us so that our lives are a reflection of what He does in us and through us and for us. Your loving Father in heaven saved you apart from anything you have or have not done. Praise Jesus. And in his saving act, he also prepared you for works. For example, having your daily quiet time. Does having your daily quiet time save you? No. Does your daily, having your daily quiet time impress God so that he wants to do more favors for you? No. Does having your daily quiet time make you somehow better than someone else? Depends on what you mean by better, but generally not. Does having your daily quiet time bring you into a closer relationship with God so that you know Him better? Because as you know Him better, you will therefore love Him and trust Him more. Amen. In the saving act of God, He prepared you and me for works. For, as Jesus says, acts of righteousness. And these acts of righteousness are demonstrations that He is at work in and through and for you. These acts of righteousness are demonstrations that you belong to Him. These acts of righteousness are themselves more grace. 
The acts of righteousness that Jesus does in you and through you and for you are in fact grace that He is pouring into you. So far from paying God back, oh God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you back for what you've done to me. I'm going to have my daily quiet time today. No! Having your daily quiet time today means that God is working grace in you. It's Him with more power to accomplish kingdom purposes in you and through you and for you, quite apart from anything you deserve. As again, John Piper says, good deeds do not pay back grace, they borrow more grace. But I have a question. When you sit down and you read God's Word and you pray, who is it who's doing it? If you don't take time to read God's Word, nobody will do it for you. They can't. And among other things, I'm being, I'm being simplistic on purpose, among other things, this is what it means to live worthy of the good news of Christ or live worthy of the calling that He has given to us. You will not merit any good from God. Instead, you are simply living as citizens of a country where this kind of living is normal. Far from normal than from where we live now. But where we live now is not our final home. Let me take another evidence from Scripture. Let me go in a different direction now. Another evidence from Scripture that we can use to see what it means to live worthy of the good news is to examine how the Bible talks about living the life that Jesus calls us to live. And the Bible, plainly, obviously, the Bible uses different metaphors to describe the same reality as if from different views so that we will know, we will see and know God better as we live in Him and as He lives in us and through us and for us so that as we know Him better, we will therefore love Him and trust Him more. So, to live worthy of the good news is to know His laws are our life. To live worthy of the good news is to guard our heart. To live worthy of the good news is to fear the Lord. To live worthy of the good news is to live dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. To live worthy of the good news is to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. To live worthy of the good news is to put off the old self and to put on the new self. To live worthy of the good news of Christ is to stand firm, striving side by side, and not frightened at all by your opponents. And a hundred other verses I could have gone to. Here's the bottom line. To live worthy of the good news of Christ is to live in such a way that others looking at you see that the gospel of Christ is so great that you're willing to live differently than the culture around you. Have you guys ever watched the show Survivor? I watched a couple of episodes, but it's just a hard show to watch. Anyways, these people go to this island, and I don't know how many weeks that they're there, but, I mean, they've got to eat snails. They, they've, got to, they've got to do some really weird stuff. And one of those people, 
walks away with some money. Maybe some of you can tell me how much money it is that they win. I don't know. But they completely upend their lives for months and are eating stuff. And most of our culture just says, oh, you guys are so great. You're changing your life so you can win some cash. My friends, we have something far better. And you don't have to eat snails. Show the people around you that the good news is so great that you're willing to put down your iPhone or your iPad exactly as Pastor Benji was talking about this morning and pray. Have your daily quiet time. Oh, what? You're crazy. Show them that you are willing to live as citizens of a different country, one whose values and affections are radically out of step with those around you because your drummer is the commander of the army of the Lord and not the prince of the power of the air. And because this is true, you are willing to take great risks for the great God who loves you and will never leave you nor forsake you. And when you get right down to it, this involves two things. The same things we mentioned earlier. The same things your Sunday school teachers have been teaching you your whole life. Repentance and faith. Changing your mind about your sins and about who God is and trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. Now, let me give you a silly story. Imagine you're in an airplane and you're flying at 30,000 feet and the pilot comes on and says, okay, uh, we need to have a vote. Everybody in the plane gets to vote. We are either going to lose our right wing or we're going to lose our left wing. You all need to make a decision and we're going to lose that wing before we land on the ground. How do you make that kind of decision? I mean, that's, that's just absurd. This sounds like a nightmare from the Twilight Zone. But the analogy comes right back down to how we live our Christian life. Because there are many of us who say, I just need to depend upon the Lord. Let go and let God. Many of us have said that. And many of us have been wrong. <laughs> just let go and let God. Well, okay, that that can mean something correct if what you mean by that is I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to depend upon the Lord and I'm going to trust that He is going to make this turn out right. Then that's a good way to use that phrase. And then you have the people who are more like me <laughs> who are just like, I am going to fight this. I am going to work hard and I am going to do this and I'm going to be on top of things. And then I have to go into an insane asylum once a month. Because I can't. Right? So, are you going to lose 
the side of the plane that's just all about fuzzy wuzzy Jesus? Or are you going to lose the side of the plane that says, I got to do this? Well, that's a dumb it's a dumb way of looking at it. Let Jerry Bridges explain this for us. The point of the airplane illustration is that we must not try to carry out our responsibilities in our own strength and willpower. We must depend upon the Holy Spirit to enable us. Amen. That's the trusting the promises of God for you in Christ part. At the same time, we must not assume that we have no responsibility simply because we are dependent. God enables us to work, but He does not do the work for us. That's the discipline part. Go on down the page. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul urged Timothy to be strong in the grace, that is, in the strength that is in Christ Jesus. Yet, Paul did exhort Timothy to discipline himself, not just turn it all over to the Lord. We must have both wings of the airplane. We cannot fly with only one. It is sub-Christian to believe that we can simply fail to pursue righteousness and think that we're fine and God is okay with our lack of discipline. That is not a Christian attitude. It is also sub-Christian to believe that all of our sanctification is up to us and that He stands over us in anger. That is also not a Christian attitude. We must never teach one half of this truth as the whole truth because that would be a lie. Christian, you are a child of God and a citizen of heaven. Therefore, live like it. You can pursue discipline. You can strive to enter the narrow gate, as Jesus says. And you can do it knowing that your heavenly Father is walking with you the whole way and that He will never let you go. This is a major theme of Paul's letter and the Philippians and the Bible as a whole. To live worthy of the good news of Christ is to live as citizens of heaven, knowing your heavenly Father and knowing God the Spirit at work in you. And you will do this by the power of God at work in us and through us and for us. Lord Almighty, some of this is hard to look at because we all fall off the horse one way or the other. God, I pray that You would strengthen us so that we would look to You so that You would work in us and through us and for us to be the men and women of God we want to be. And so that we will bring glory to you. And others will see that we believe that you are worth more than all that this world can give.